Hey gang, I had a great conversation with William Derezowitz, who is the author of a new collection of essays, which is titled The End of Solitude. We talked about his critique of academia, his critique of technology and social media, what he thinks undergraduate education should really be for, and we talked a bit about Harold Bloom, the late literary scholar. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you do, leaving a five-star review is a great way to help other people find the show. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Bill Derezowitz. Bill, could you please introduce yourself? <laughs> I can, although you did such a beautiful job pronouncing my name. <laughs> uh, Bill Derezowitz, or William Derezowitz on my uh, byline. Uh, author of a few books, and now the most recent one is called The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society, which is uh, a collection of essays that I've written over the last, well, it goes back almost 30 years, but most of them are from the last 15 years, and there's several that are new and have not been published before. Well, congratulations on the book, and thanks for coming back on the show yep. uh, to talk about it. We So we last talked, I guess, about two years ago about your book, yeah. The Death of the Artist. Yeah. And um, by the time this episode airs, this book will be available from, you know, wherever fine books are sold okay. <laughs> and, and people can get it. So how did you, you know, selected essays on culture and society? How did you select? What was your, what were you thinking about this as like a cohesive work? And how did you decide what to include from things you had previously written and what, oh, yeah. what to leave out? No, that's a good question because I didn't conceive of it as a cohesive work. I conceived <laughs> of it as no, I didn't. I mean, except insofar as I wrote them all, which which is it's which is not nothing. I mean, it's my sensibility, it's my point of view. Um, also, maybe as it develops over the years, although the the pieces aren't in chronological order, I selected them because I thought they were the best ones I've written and the ones that are the most worth reprinting. Um, you know, there were a few that I really liked, but I thought maybe they're too topical, uh, too specific to the time they were written. But for the most part, you know, I just wanted to have, you know, some of the essays are still circulating widely. Many of them are not. Many of them have just kind of would otherwise be lost. And I wanted to put them between the covers of a book and just sort of say, like, here, this is me. This is the best thinking that I've done over the last you know, many years really at this point. And then, you know, once I did that, or as I was doing that, I started to see, I mean, I knew that there would be certain thematic clusters uh, that I would emphasize by grouping them together into the different parts of the book. I think there's seven parts or six parts to the book. So there's a section on technology culture, meaning, you know, life on the social media platforms mainly. There's a section on higher education. I was an English professor for a long time. I've written about that a lot. There's sections on the various arts and on intellectuals who have meant a lot to me and so on. It was only when I came time to write the preface, I knew that, okay, I have to write a preface. And in order to write a preface, I've got to be able to say something about what binds all this stuff together. And I, you know, I, um, it's really what, what I talked about, what I talk about there is something that I've been thinking about more and more recently, really in the course of writing some of the last essays that have made it into the book, which is 
this was and this was in the the last book too, the death of the artist and how the arts are changing. I think the self is changing. I think under the pressure of social media, and I think now we can talk about what's been going on with progressive politics, but especially social media, which is whatever may be true of progressive politics, social media and the internet more broadly is here to stay. I think it's not even just disrupting, but maybe disintegrating a kind <laughs> of selfhood, a kind of personhood that that I think I took for granted when I was younger, but that is a, but is a historical phenomenon with a clear beginning and seems to be on its way to having a clear ending. What am I talking about? Uh, the notion of being an individual. Um, I discovered not too long ago from a book by Joshua Cohen that the word individual in the sense we mean it, being an individual, was coined by Rousseau in the late 18th century. It did not exist before. Hmm. And then and this is Joshua Cohen, the philosopher? Joshua Cohen, the novelist. And oh, okay, if a, a former guest on this program in that yeah, case. Yeah, and an extremely smart person who knows a lot about a lot of things. He's got a book called Attention, right? It's a collection of his essays. I reviewed it for the Times Book Review. Um, and it's in the course of that that he was, I don't remember the exact context that he brought it up, but it makes perfect sense to me because the late 18th century was the seedbed of so much of what we think of as characteristic of modernity, right? It's when industrialism starts to gather momentum. It's the age of the revolutions in the United States and France, the age of a new articulation of rights, of what it means to be a citizen rather than a subject of the, you know, of, of, a, of a king. Um, ideas and even words like privacy. And so this new conception of a self take, starts to take shape where you define yourself at least in part not according to the group you belong to or the tradition that you were born into, but against those things for the sake of defining your own unique selfhood. And you did that in a lot of ways, but you did it, uh, I think, centrally through reading. Uh, not only does literacy become widespread for the first time, but silent reading, right, becomes a thing. It didn't used to be Reading used to be a group activity, mainly because, you know, you couldn't afford that many books and not that many people knew how to read. Mm -hmm. So, and, and just the fact that we, we started to each, we started to build houses, you know, Witold Rybczynski, the great, you know, historian of architecture and especially domestic architecture talks about how for the first time you start to build houses, you know, middle-class or bourgeois houses where people got their own room. Uh, and so you could actually withdraw into a space of privacy or solitude as part of, you know, physically distinguishing yourself from everyone else around you. And you read, you know, you sort of dove deeply into another consciousness and therefore into your own consciousness, the function of art, you know, including visual art and musical art, and dramatic art became transformed. And it's central to it was this, again, this idea of sort of the individual encounter, the, the self-conscious shaping of your own personhood. This is a very long way to answer your question and explain what I very briefly say in the preface, which is that I think what holds the, the collection together is that one way or another, these are either about defining and defending that conception of the self against the various things that I think are besetting it now, or simply trying to enact it. You know, it's a record of my best attempt to be an individual, which... <laughs> Which is, which is, and this is sort of another thing that I, that's crystallized for me in recent years, um, is 
an ongoing project. It's not something you can ever take for granted. It's something you have to work on. Uh, if you care about it all the time. Let's start with the title essay, which is also the first one uh, after the preface. And The End of Solitude, 2009, I think is. Yeah, that's right. When it's from. Um, why did you, well, why did, I mean, you've touched on this somewhat, but why did you decide that this would be the title essay and also the first one? And right. what what is, you know, what spurred you to write it 13 or so years ago at this point? Yeah, right. So uh, to take your questions in order, I, I thought that this, more than anything, that that title, more than anything, encapsulated what I was just talking about. Because that piece is about how solitude is essential to this, again, not just this conception of the self, but this enactment of the self, this practice, this practice of selfhood. And it's also one of the oldest essays in the book. I said most of them are from the last 15 years. So I thought it would be a good place to start because it kind of launches a certain line in my thinking. So we go from that essay in the book, as I did in my life, from the end of solitude to solitude and leadership, which is a, an address that I gave at West Point, subsequent to this, uh, that has circulated very widely. And then there's an essay about friendship that's kind of a pendant to the end of solitude because that one is about how social media is deforming our practice of friendship. So it's kind of, I mean, it's sort of thematically perfect for, and I think chronologically perfect for me to start with, even if it isn't literally the oldest piece in the book. How I came to write it, well, it really had to do with the other uh, most well-known piece called The Disadvantages of an Elite Education, which I wrote in 2008 as I was leaving uh, Yale as an English professor, leaving academia. Um, and it was a way to articulate the things that I, the problems I was seeing with my students. And we can talk more about that. Mm -hmm. That's the piece that starts the second section. It's the piece that eventually led me to write Excellent Sheep, which I think is the book that I'm best known for, um, if people know me at all, came out eight years ago. Um, but in the course of this transition, the disadvantages of an elite education, and I'm talking about how the incessant busyness and really anti-intellectualism of the kind of achievement rat race that elite students go through both in order to get into elite colleges and then when they're there and then, you know, potentially for the rest of their lives. Uh, in the course of that, I, I uh, talk about a moment in the, in, in the classroom where it was actually a course in the literature of friendship. But one day we ended up talking, we got around to talking about solitude. And I was talking about the importance of solitude. And one of my students said, why would anybody ever want to be alone? <laughs> what can you do by yourself that you can't do with other people? And another student said, you know, I, I wish I could be alone, but I just can't. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not capable of it anymore. And even when I have to write a paper, I'll go to a friend's room and I'll sit there and I'll sit with her and I'll write my paper and she'll do whatever she's doing. So that essay came out and Evan Goldstein, uh, who's a great editor at the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education, pointed to that. This is one of the things that a really good editor can do. He, picked out that thread and said, hey, do you want to write an essay about the decline of solitude? So uh, I said, yeah, maybe, let me think about it. And what I, want, what I thought about 
sort of the real work of that piece that became the end of solitude was to try to figure out, like, if, if I want to defend solitude as a value, one question I wanted to answer for myself and my readers is, is this just some, was this just a phenomenon of the, another one of these phenomena that just existed in the 18th century or just that just started in the 18th century, like privacy and other things like that. And it's historically contingent. And, you know, I could see the argument being like, well, you know, so what? I mean, it's just, we don't, you know, people lived without it for a long time. I mean, you get that kind of sort of semi-stupid argument about things like that. And in thinking about it, what I realized is that that's true and it's not true. That as of universal value, something that everyone should aspire to have in their lives, solitude really dates from that time. But there is a long tradition of solitude, specifically in a religious context. You know, we have hermits and, and prophets who kind of are, you know, the Bible tells us about a prophet going off into the wilderness and hearing the voice of God. Uh, what does that mean? I don't understand that literally. What I understand that to mean is that it is in solitude that we can come into contact with ourselves and the world at a deeper level. We can hear wisdom. We can hear, quote unquote, the voice of God. And what happened in the 18th century, as it happened to a number of important things, is that the, that concept became both secularized and democratized. So we did, so this thing that had been a possession, sort of a, a possession of a relatively privileged leisure class, I mean, you don't think of a hermit as a leisure class, but someone is supporting, you know, <laughs> I mean, people are supporting, those religious figures are supported, or monks, you know, they were supported by tithes, right? Yeah, or so the begging bowl or, the or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or church tithes, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was big up, the Catholic Church had a big operation, still does. So <laughs> it was the, it was for the sake of creating what you might call leisure for the sake of study, but also of contemplation. And now this idea of contemplation is something that we recognize is everyone is capable of and everyone should have the freedom, the opportunity to do. I mean, this is also an important idea for education going forward. So that's kind of the crux of that essay is like, this is a thing we've been doing for a long time that we've recognized the value of for millennia. This is a thing that for centuries now we felt belongs to everybody, but it is a thing that we seem to be losing. Um, uh, there's a lot of places we go from this. It's interesting to think that this was sparked by uh, one of your students saying, you know, the, why would you ever want to be alone? I write a, if I'm writing paper, I want like my friend there yeah. hanging out with me. I mean, yeah. you know, the college is, a time when, and you know, most students who are going to elite colleges probably had their own bedrooms. And then they are suddenly pushed into usually like a double or something with a stranger. And that's their first roommate who isn't a sibling or maybe their uh -huh. first roommate ever. So it's it, in some ways, um, and you know, you're thrown into a pool with a bunch of people you don't know before, whereas, the kids you knew in high school were, you know, you probably knew them for a long time. So there's an interesting, con you know, sort of, you know, if the, the standard college student writing a paper, his or her roommate might be writing a different paper right next to them. So there's, there's entering the modern, you know, residential university system. Um, 
the kids are giving up some solitude. Well, I would dispute that a little bit. I mean, I th- my my guess, my educated guess is that that generally speaking only applies to first year students. I lived in a double when I was a first year student. Almost everybody I went to Columbia at least at that time. Almost every freshman lived in a double, but after my freshman year, I had my own dorm room and. Almost all of the dorms were singles, right? So I think it's really only something that happens freshman year. And we can speculate why it happens. I mean, it it saves them having to build another building, but it's probably also because they really want to get people to mix socially for the reasons you just said, because, you know, you're encountering other people, you know, sort of other kinds of people for the first time. But generally speaking, I think a college student for most of their time has their own room. And it, actually, you're reminding me, I think I say this in in that essay that, uh, or I might have cut it out when I revised it a little bit for the for the volume. That uh, Emerson said that um, if you can only say one good thing about college, he said it in an Emersonian way. But he said, at the very least, college gives you your own room. I mean, he was talking <laughs> about the Harvard of the gentlemen of the nineteenth century. But he was like, if it does nothing else, it gives you your own room. And he's specifically talking about the value of privacy and solitude and being able to think for yourself in an uninterrupted way or read for yourself in an uninterrupted way. So my student, I mean, my guess is that, I mean, I'm sure, I didn't ask her, but I'm sure the student who said that, who was, I think, a junior at that point, I'm sure she already had her own room, Mm -hmm. which is why she had to go to a friend's room, (laughs) right? right? But she could have. She could have just stayed in her own room. And I think the problem is that um, for various reasons we can talk about, either uh, students no longer feel comfortable being alone or when they are alone. And people have talked a lot about how alone students have been during the pandemic. They're alone, but it's not what I call solitude, right? For me, solitude isn't the objective state of being alone. It's a, it's, it's, it's a certain way that you use that state. And we all know that not only college students, but really everybody, when we're alone now, we almost invariably need to fill that solitude, that aloneness with the internet, with some kind of connection that makes us feel not alone. Right. So the the period in which one is alone with with one's thoughts is much slower than it used to be. And I was was joking a couple of months ago on Twitter, of course, where I type out all my jokes that... um, you know, um, aimless staring has really gone downhill over the yeah. past 15 years. Yeah. Because if you were like meeting someone somewhere and you were early, um, you know, yeah. 20 years ago, you would just either you brought something to read with you. Maybe you right. had a Walkman or something, but most likely you're just sort of standing there staring and seeing, uh, you know, looking around, trying to see when they would show up and that you don't need to do that anymore. You can look at your phone and especially if you're by yourself, that's certainly not seen as rude or, or anything, just looking at your phone standing on the street. Um, and, you know, people <laughs> do that when they're in, co- in company as well. So just that sort of like, yeah, period where you ha- are not, you know, you're not choosing what to distract yourself with, that uh, universal uh, internet-connected phones have really, <laughs> really eliminated yeah. that period when sort of, you know, a an idea or a reflection or something might might come to you. No, I think this is a tremendously large thing. I mean, you're laughing about it a little bit. I understand because it's also kind of an absurd situation, but I think this is an enormous thing. And, and it actually, 
come it post dates my essay on the end of solitude 2009 i forget exactly when the iphone debuted i think it was around then i think it was 08 was the iPhone. i think it was 08 too. it wasn't widely taken up it was not from- widely taken up until about five years later that's exactly right so uh even when i wrote this i was really just writing about facebook primarily but you know facebook you you know when you when you walked away from your laptop you walked away from facebook mm-hmm. and now it's exactly what you just say at every single moment because we've become so addicted to the stimulation and I think so afraid of the absence of the stimulation of being alone with ourselves, that whether it's we're waiting for someone, we're standing online at a store, whatever it is, right? We're just we're just at home, right? And you said, you know, it 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 precludes the possibility of a random thought coming in. I would also say, and I think this is a big part of why people use it, it precludes the possibility of becoming too aware of our own emotions. Mm-hmm. which can often be, you know, difficult emotions. They could be loneliness or they can be sadness or whatever it is. But that's, I mean, that's a, that leads to a profound disconnection from the self. So in this piece, yeah. So it's, you know, you wrote this piece before smartphones became sort of universal in America. And there's a couple specific things that you mentioned that are sort of out of date by this point. So one of them is you mentioned yeah. black blackberries. Right. I, I don't even know. I, I think Blackberry did go bankrupt or something, but maybe it's the brand still no exists. Yeah. And, and MySpace also, which right. essentially doesn't exist anymore. How did did you think about? Well, one, did you think about changing those things to you know Twitter and iPhone to update it? And two, how do you think about as someone who's writing? You know, if you're writing an essay. Um, trying to say something about the current culture, but especially technology, the way technology and culture interact, uh, it's going so fast now that you can, um, like, I don't know, like, there's a lot of think pieces about TikTok right now. I have no idea if TikTok is going to stand the test of time. And in three years, people will be like, oh yeah, TikTok. Like, well, what's that thing again? Like, who knows? But how do you think about that? You know, trying to say something (laughs) meaningful about these things when it's, it's constantly churning. Right. So first of all, yeah, I I, um, I know that MySpace is, is uh, uh, you're the first person to mention BlackBerry, but a number of other people who've already interviewed me, talked to me for this book, have mentioned MySpace because it, it just really, it so reeks of uh, obsolescence uh, and it kind of brings people up short. So as I mentioned in passing, I, I, I didn't revise these pieces extensively. I wanted a record as my thoughts. But I did go through and, you know, improve some sentences and some of the wording, you know. And I'm pretty sure the first essay that I, you know, started to do that with was The End of Solitude because I knew it would be the first one in the book. And initially, I did take out MySpace and take out (laughs) Blackberry, Mm -hmm. Blackberries. And then, you know, like the next day or something, I thought, you know, I don't want to do it this way. Um because these were thoughts from a very specific time. And once I start doing that, do I have to rewrite it now to talk about the iPhone? So instead, I uh, I supplied the date at the end of each essay. So that's how you know that this came out in 2009. It says it right on the page mm-hmm. after the essay, and all the other essays are like that. So uh, I could preserve it as a record of a certain moment. And if MySpace brought you up short, as I guess it will bring up everybody short. Uh, it's a good, <laughs> it's a good, it's a great reminder, very close to the start of the book, 
that these are each from a very specific historical moment. Now, how much have things changed? Well, we talk about the iPhone. I think that that's a big, big difference. In terms of social media in general, I actually, I mean, granted, I'm not on TikTok. And, <laughs> nor, know, nor am I. Right. It's a pretty, it's a pretty generational thing. I have an Instagram account, but only because I, every once in a while, I want to go on Instagram to look at, you know, I might want to look at something, but I, I'm not active on Instagram. But so I may be wrong, but I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that the dynamic of each of these is basically the same. I mean, they each function somewhat differently, but it's all basically the same idea. Uh, you know, you're connected to various people, you have a feed that you can scroll through, uh, or some other way of, you know, sort of scrolling, you know, sort of monitoring. Um, you have an opportunity to put your, to construct a self, to construct a, a persona on the platform. Um, so I actually don't think that things have changed that much in that respect. And I would also say, I was thinking about this a lot for the death of the artist that this, there was this huge burst of innovation in the internet, you know, web 2.0, basically in the first decade of the, of the century. And that's when you get Twitter and Facebook and, and uh, Instagram and, and the iPhone and a million other things. And since then, it really hasn't maintained that same pace. I mean, TikTok, I think, is the thing that would, you'd most obviously point to and say, this is a new thing. Mm -hmm. But I would, you know, and I think we thought, you know, 20, 15, 10 years ago that it would just be one new thing after another on a virtually monthly basis. Hasn't really worked out like that. And I think that this was also true of sort of the burst of innovation around the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the airplane and the car and the phone. Uh, the phone is a widespread thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then it settled down. And I think what we see is, I, I think obviously I could be wrong, but I think the internet is kind of, you know, crystallizing into the form that it's going to take more or less for the foreseeable future. So I think this is the shape that our consciousness is going to have. And, and I should also say that even if there are significant changes, the internet slash social media slash the iPhone in general, this is just how it's going to be. This is the human future. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of. If you obvious. want a vision of the future, yeah, it's uh, well, a, I mean, dispiriting uh, to think about. It's dispiriting, and I think that that's why. I mean, I guess intellectually, I kind of knew that, but it only it only hit me like a few weeks ago. Like, because I mean, I guess because I'm from before, so I have a memory. <laughs> so I have so there's the, the possibility exists in my mind that 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 it doesn't you know that doesn't have to exist, but. There's no reason to believe. I mean, the phone hasn't gone away. It's never going to go away. Why should it? So, this is this is the future, and we need to we need to come to terms with it. Yes, that makes sense. And there's, I guess, there's some hype around like Web three, but that seems to have largely fizzled out. Uh, who knows what will yes. happen next? You know, it's always possible there will be something new or some sort of move away from just because people get sick of something and you know facebook was dominant for 10 or so years but i think most young people are not on facebook because they think it's boring or corny or something and they right. don't want their parents seeing what they're into or their grandparents and so maybe and it's also a 
poorly run company that, that um has done a lot of unethical things so there's sort of a some revulsion around that so so it, there could be changes but yeah a, an entirely new form it, it seems it, well it's hard to conceptualize at this point yeah. um and yeah and and most of it is <laughs> turned out to be pretty bad so um yeah so that's unfortunate as well um so when i was about halfway through the collection i was describing to someone what the book was about and i said something like you know that sort of he writes a lot about education and higher education and sort of the two big villains are neoliberalism and the students and <laughs> the students are so bad because of neoliberalism and so i sort of joke about that but um you write a lot about higher education but i think you you really sort of excoriate every every possible group including yourself when you write this essay about leaving um yeah. academia and you also have a ideal or idealized or something vision of what a liberal arts education should be um and basically every every group connected to higher education is falling short of that the the, the students the administration administrators the faculty and uh you know anything else connected connect the higher yeah. ed is is failing um so there's a lot to talk about here and i don't you know your excellent sheep came out a decade or so ago um which is a book i have not read but i listened to a number of conversations that you had yeah. uh and about the book but um i mean what was is my initial glib comment how does that how does that strike you well uh a bit, a bit glib. Um, <laughs> so I, listen, I want to make it really clear first that I don't, it's not that I, I, I hate the students or I'm against the students or I blame the students. I mean, I know I tend to write in a pretty sometimes caustic, certainly frank way. And, um, and I think, and I, and I, and, and students in general are not, not what I wish they were, but they're young, you know, and insofar as I, as I, as I think they're not going through college the right way, I don't blame them. Um, I think neoliberalism plays a role because of the way, I mean, basically, so that's the essay called The Neoliberal Arts. Harper's gave it that title. I, I really love that title because I talk about how neoliberalism, meaning uh, market fundamentalism, in other words, Everything the market should be everything should we should we should refer all problems to the market. The market is the source of all value and all values. Um, how does that play out in education? I mean, you hear politicians say this all the time, especially Republican governors, but not only Republicans. Um, the purpose of education is to train people for the job market. So when it's K through 12, you hear about college and career readiness. But when you but college really just means career, because when they talk about college, they talk about career readiness. So it's all about, as Scott Walker famously wanted to change the charter of the University of Wisconsin to say, serving the state's workforce needs. So that's the neoliberalism part. It's not the only part. I mean, uh, that section starts with the disadvantages of an elite education. I don't really talk about neoliberalism or wasn't something I was thinking about, at least with respect to higher education back in 2008. That's about the college admissions process. And the one word synonym for that is meritocracy. Now, I'm not against meritocracy if it means 
you know, quote unquote, hiring the best person for the job. I'm against what we call the meritocracy and how it's evolved. And specific, first of all, how rigged it is, right? Because it's not like everybody has a fair shot. Basically, the elite college admissions uh, did a very big pivot in the 60s away from sort of the old WASP elite. You know, you, you're a boy, you were white, you went to a New England private school and you had, you know, uh, prestige access, ready access to the Ivy League to what we call meritocracy. And it was supposed to be fair. And in some ways it is fairer, but very quickly upper middle class and upper class parents figured out how to game the system by stuffing their kids with as many educational resources as possible. And this is why you have these enormous class, uh, you know, skews in the, in the student populations of fancy colleges. I mean, typically, between about, I was just looking at these numbers, between about 65 and 85% of students at highly selective colleges come from the top 20%. Um, and often as many as 15 to 20% come from the top 1%. Hmm. But it's not like the old pre-meritocracy where they're just basically being, their ways being bought in. The money is laundered through what the kids are expected to do which is to become achievement machines, as David Brooks called them a long time ago, and do a dozen AP courses and a dozen extracurriculars and all the crap that we know about very well, which is what Excellent Sheep is about. And that produces kids who, they don't know what the hell they want to do with their lives. That's the biggest problem, right? And they have no conception of what an education might mean for them. So you see, you know, you say I have this idea or this ideal, this idealized version of a liberal arts education, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I'm very wary because a lot of people have said, have said, "Oh, it's just nostalgia," and worse than that, it's nostalgia for a time that's never existed. And <laughs> uh-huh. and, and I, I guess I've never really uh, responded in this way before, but you've thankfully given me a chance. The form of liberal education education that I want everyone to have a chance to have exists. It's not a pipe dream. It's not something from the golden days or something that ever existed. It exists mainly in, in specific classrooms of teachers who are dedicated to it, of students who care enough to want to put themselves through it. And in a few cases, at a few colleges, that have devoted themselves to it, most obviously the St. John's Great Books Colleges. Mm-hmm. So this isn't a, you know, this isn't a fantasy. It exists. The problem is it gets no support. It gets no support from universities, from parents, from politicians, because most students go to public universities and colleges. So what the politicians think matters a lot. And instead, I think a lot of the money that goes into higher education and a lot of the time that students put into it is wasted. So, you know, the, the question, what is college for? What is the American college for? Is one that has a bunch of different possible answers. Probably the most common answer, if you polled a thousand Americans, would be um, so you can get a good job. Yeah. Um, and that is not what you think college should be for. Well, it's so, complicated. Yeah, no. so, so what Sorry, would you, if, if, if you were answering, what, what is college for? 
Um, yeah. How would you answer it? Yeah. I mean, so let me say, first of all, that there isn't just one answer to that question. I don't mean just that people have different answers. I mean that it isn't just for one thing, even in my opinion. I mean, college is like four years out of your life at the beginning of adulthood, typically. Um, it needs to serve a number of different purposes, as I readily acknowledge. I mean, I readily advocate. I think one of the best things that the liberal arts can do for itself is to show students that they are useful for the rest of your life and, and, and even just your career, okay? So they're not mutually exclusive, and I absolutely recognize, even if college were free, which I think it should be, even then you are at least devoting four years of your life, four years where you could be earning a living. College needs to absolutely help people uh, get a better job. But here's the way I put it. I actually put it in a piece that uh, just came out. So it came out too late to be in the book. Uh, it's in Liberties. It's called Soul Making Studies. And it's about, mm -hmm. it's a defense of great books courses. And what I say is that college needs to be practical. It needs to help you acquire the tools to achieve your goals. But it also needs to be liberal, meaning it needs to help you figure out what those goals should be in the first place. And that to me is a nutshell definition of a liberal arts education. Something that helps you think about what you want to do with what you want to do with your life. Think about what you what is worth striving for, as it's been put in slightly lofty language. What should you want? And then once you figure that out, or I mean it's an ongoing process, once you figure out how to figure that out on an ongoing basis, then you can decide. I mean, you know, then go to go to a graduate school, maybe, and study medicine or study social work or study the arts or whatever you want, or go into the workforce and pursue your goals that way. Absolutely. But don't, but college is the time to step back from all the expectations that have been placed on you, all the, all the static you're getting from society and often from your peers about what you're supposed to want and start to figure out what you want. And, and you, you know, generally speaking, you need help with that. You need help not being told what to want, but being told how to figure it out for yourself. So let's see. Um... Does that make sense? I I think that, so. What was your college experience like? Well, you know, your book made me think about um, think about my college experience, and you know, coincidentally, I went to college where you taught uh, and was an English major, which is what you taught. But I I never took a class under you, um, and I've had the chance. I mean, sort of the you know, pandemic gave everyone a lot of chance to reflect <laughs> on things when I wasn't being distracted by my phone. Um, <laughs> and it also, um, I was also laid off during the pandemic from my job at Blogging Heads where this show used to um, exist. Right. And so one of the things I uh, was doing was, you know, looking for a new job. And, you know, so I was going over my resume and stuff like this and, you know, reflecting back on my bright college years. Um, so I enjoyed college. If I had to do it over again, I would not um, choose probably to, I would not choose something other than English because I did enjoy being an English major. Um, but what I sort of realized was one of the, <laughs> something I would do different if I could do it over was I definitely would have not have studied so much. 
because mm. I, I mean, I don't know whether I was one of the excellent sheep or not, but in order to get into an Ivy League school, if you're not a legacy or a recruited athlete, you need right. to have very good grades and you need to be good at standardized tests and yeah, do a lot of extracurriculars and just be lucky <laughs> in some other way. Yeah. But the, the type of young person who wants, who is driven to get A's all the time and, you know, feels an A minus is sort of like a dis somewhat yeah. of a disappointment. And then yes. B plus, well, you really yeah. screwed now. Um, th like that was, I sort of like gave myself that though, um, as, as a kid. And I don't know exactly where that came from, mm. but in college, I just felt the same way. Yeah. Like if I, I needed to get straight A's um, or not, or not straight A's, but like anything below an A minus was somewhat right. of a failure. Right. And you talk, you know, you talk about this in the book and this, and so this is like led to great inflation in various ways, because if a kid gets a B plus, they're like fighting with the professor over the grade or something. I never did any like grade grubbing or anything like that, but I, it was just like what I knew how to do and the way to like please adults or something was to get good grades. And so I felt like I needed to keep on doing that, even though I didn't know what I wanted to do afterwards. You know, there were vague ideas, maybe grad school, maybe law school, things for which your college transcript does matter. And I was competing against my fellow students, a lot of whom ended up going to postgraduate education, but, um, but I never did. And so my grades ended up not mattering I mean, to my life, that uh, mattering mm. at all. I've never had a job interview where they wanted to look at my transcript. Um, oh. So I, I worked quite hard in college and I was probably somewhere around the 50th you know, percentile in terms of ability or a little bit below. And I really knocked myself out in various ways. When looking back at it, there was no reason to. And I should have done various things, just like hung out more and like chill yeah. out a little bit more, just not to stress yeah. myself. Yeah. But also like been more of a schmoozer or something and made more mm. friends, which is all, you know, making friends is usually good. But the type of people who go to Yale 10, 15, 20 years later, it turns out that they, you know, could be useful to you if you right. are unemployed. Um, so, and there were people there at the time who sort of seemed like, you know, canny operators. And yes. my group of friends were sort of like, would turn up our noses at them being like, oh, this guy's fake nice. You know, he just wants everyone to like him sort of thing. But just if I had just like been more social or met more people or something, it probably would have like helped my, you know, helped my mm. career. I would, I probably wouldn't have gotten into a secret society, but I just would have, um, yeah, no more people who mm. a dozen years later would be in the position to, you know, help me out in some way. And another, and I, this, I've been talking for a very long time, but I, I got the piece of advice that if you're looking for a job, you need to, it's, it's very helpful for your LinkedIn profile to have over 500 connections oh, um, because then it says just 500 plus and this uh -huh. supposedly looks, looks good. So I had around when I was laid off and, you know, spending time trying to polish my resume and stuff, I had like 200 or so. So I started spending time on LinkedIn and anyone I had, you know, anyone from my class whose name I recognized I sent them a link, you know, like a LinkedIn request. Yeah. And I noticed that a shocking number of people from Yale class of 2005 are now lawyers. Um, yeah, right. Well, very few are, are medical doctors. Um, there's some professors. Huh. Now, the, the, this, I, I assume the type of person who makes a LinkedIn profile 
probably skews more right. towards that line of work. Right. But there were like two people whose names I recognize who are now doctors and like, you know, like, well, I wonder if it's also who are, who are lawyers. Wow. I, I wonder if it's also, I mean, maybe you're telling me this is not the case, but you were an English major, so you're more likely to know English majors and perhaps less likely to know. Uh, it, bi- yes, biology, it's possible. And there, yeah, there probably majors. were kids who were in the pre-med track who were, you know, the science version of me who were just like studying all the time because they wanted to get right. very good grades. But, you know, right. the re- yeah, this res- residential college system. So there are people who I knew right. vaguely who, you know, were, right. were studying very different things from me. But yeah, it seems like. I mean, that's, but that's like, I mean, I, I think you've, you've brought this into focus for me that in a way that no one has before, but, but I, I, you know, I think that the Yale English department and no doubt comparable departments at other schools are basically, you know, manufacturing centers for future lawyers because, <laughs> because that's, that's what you do. I mean, you're not going to be a doctor if you graduate in English, if you didn't also do pre-med and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, which is, uh, you know, perhaps a little sad. I mean, I think what's sad is that between law, medicine, banking, finance, consulting, and tech, mm-hmm. that's the lion's share. I mean, well over 50% of graduates at most elite colleges now, highly elite colleges, whether it's Yale or a place like Pomona College or something, so which, which suggests to me a lack of imagination. And that's part of what the title, Excellent Sheep, signifies that you're just all going in the same few directions. Right. And if you, you know, it's an obvious, like it's something I thought about. And it's, if you, you know, have some talent with writing or words or analyzing things, it's sort of a natural thing that makes sense, especially if you're like, well, what am I going to do with my life? How can I get a job? Graduate from law school, you'll probably be able to find some some sort of job as a lawyer. Listen, I I almost uh, went to law school myself because I didn't know what else to do with my life. Right. And I, yeah. And, a number of people I know my age who are lawyers do not like being lawyers <laughs> and have either. God, I mean, I mean, the either, irony is, yeah. 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 They, some of them are no longer working, like using their legal, you know, working as attorneys or whatever. They're doing something else. And some are just sort of like gutting it out. Um, yeah. It, I does, mean, it does seem like something that a lot of people end up not, not liking. Yeah. I mean, another part of the problem with, you know, these are the five postgraduate occupational destinations for so much of the quote unquote best and the brightest is that uh, lawyers, doctors, and bankers are some of the unhappiest people in the country. I mean, like literally (laughs) surveys of occupations and, you know, measures of subjective uh, well-being or rates of substance abuse, suicide, divorce. I mean, no one's, I mean, not no one, Lawyers and people who work on Wall Street tend to hate, you know, uh, tend to hate their jobs. Doctors also are often really, uh, really miserable. Um, so, you know, what was the point? Well, I mean, they also make a lot of money and they're they're very high status occupations, but probably that's not worth the trade-off. Yeah. And, and you know, not everyone is working at some you know, white shoe firm or something. I, I, a, a good friend of mine from college is, you know, essentially a, a public defender and someone who was a year below me in my residential college was on Mueller's team doing, you know, as part of the Trump investigation. And so, yeah, it's not just people who yeah. are looking to cash out. Um, it's, you know, people who are 
I assume they, they they feel like they're doing something to yeah they're probably make the world less... a better place, which is another idea that you critique. Yeah, I critique the concept of making the world a better place because it's become a meaningless cliche. I mean, if you really are making the world a better place, then good for you. Do you want to talk? I mean, do you want to talk about that? Because it's become a very uh, potent phrase, especially on college campuses now. Yes. Uh, and there's a couple parts of the book where you are talking about, yeah, sort of the, the buzzwords of the modern campus. And one of them yeah. is leadership. Right. And this is, you talk about this most in your essay that you've delivered at West Point. Right. Um, and yeah, creativity. Right. Uh, diversity. <laughs> um, yep. what, what are your thoughts on, right. these, on these buzzwords? Well, there's a, there's a fair amount to say about all of them, but um, one of the things is that they're just meaningless, feel-good cliches. I mean, leadership, that, that essay, Solitude and Leadership, as I mentioned earlier, started as a talk that I gave to the, to the first years, the plebes at West Point, because I knew someone who was on the English de- in the uh, English department then, and she and a couple of colleagues saw the end of Solitude essay and asked me to come and talk to the plebes about Solitude. And I figured they're not going to, you know, they're not going to care if this sort of the spectacled, pointy-headed intellectual starts hectoring them about Solitude. <laughs> so I tried to connect it to something that matters to them, which is leadership. The thing is that at West Point, it actually means something. In the Army, it actually means mm-hmm. something very different from what it means on most every other campus. On most every other campus, it means um, looking out for number one. It's about, it's about just it's self-aggrandizement. It's about getting to the top and getting as much for yourself as you can, not, oh, being in service to other people, like the pe- putting the people you're leading first, um, sacrificing yourself or dedicating yourself to a higher cause, uh, the stewardship of institutions or of a country. That doesn't mean any of those things. So I think it's really used as a signal. Uh, we're going to make you leaders. Everybody understands at a place like, I don't know, Harvard or Yale, that that means, like I said, you're going to get to the top. You're going to have a lot of wealth and status and power. So it's a euphemism as well as a cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, creativity, we can come back to, I, I, you know, I don't know that it's the most exciting to talk about, but, um, diversity. I mean, people have made this critique before. It's one of my main critiques of elite education. Yeah. There's diversity of skin color and of gender. There's very little diversity either of wealth of socioeconomic background. Right. I mean, I think I heard, I just heard these numbers once again, or this fact once again that most students of African descent at Harvard and comparable schools are from affluent families, upper middle class or higher. And most of them are not descendants of American slaves. They're not what you might call African-American. They are uh, immigrants or children of immigrants from Mm -hmm. Africa or the Caribbean. And generally speaking, their, their parents are at least upper middle class, if not, you know, like the wealthy family in Nigeria, you know, the oligarchs. Mm-hmm. It's often true of South students who come from South Asia as well. I had <laughs> students like that. The, there um, was a there was a rumored um, African prince in my yeah, class. Yeah, uh, I, probably, I was I never confirmed, but it, it could, very true. well could have been. Yeah, and I, I I taught a class in South Asian fiction for a few years, and I remember one year having a couple of students from Pakistan. I I loved them; they were great kids. And one of them, you know, I always ask my students you know, tell me about your family, whatever. 
And one of them kind of made it sound like his father was a farmer. And the other one, who was a good friend of his, explained to me later, like, no, what he was trying to say is that his father owns a significant part of the country, <laughs> of okay, the farmland yeah. in the country. Uh -huh. So that's, that's what we're talking That This is what diversity looks like. And in terms of intellectual diversity, I mean, it wasn't even that bad when I was teaching left in 2008. By this point, 14 years later, for reasons I don't think we need to go into, intellectual diversity is, is actively stamped out at these schools. So I want to see real diversity. I mean, one, one for example, the demographic group that is by far the most underrepresented is, is working class whites, right? They're, working class whites are like 40% of the country, and they are virtually absent from elite college campuses, which I think is one of the reasons we have a leadership class, at least on the left half of the spectrum, that's completely out of touch with a large part of the country and didn't see Trump coming and still doesn't really know what to do with him or with his acolytes. Um, can we talk about your Harold Bloom essay? And Oh, sure. You, you mentioned Joshua Cohen, who his last book, which uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, right. included right. a fictionalized version of Bloom, who he was uh, in real life, the real Joshua Cohen was was close to and yeah. you you wrote an essay that i guess is a re was a review of a late bloom book the anatomy yeah. of influence was that was that what it was yeah, called yeah but i mean there were so many of those and they were all interchangeable i think it was called <laughs> the anatomy of influence right and his breakout, i honestly don't even remember i think yeah and his breakup book was the anxiety of influence and he's sort of revisiting this yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um well and it's funny you know he was a you know a totally sui Generis, if that's how you pronounce that yes, word, a figure yes. in general. But on Yale's campus, you know, he like left the English department. He arranged it so he didn't have to do any committee work or that he didn't want to do or and attend any meetings he didn't want to. He was a, a sort of force of nature. And you mentioned that you had basically never saw him in your time there. I audited a seminar he gave in uh, Shakespeare uh, when I was a senior. And that was an interesting experience in various ways. Earlier. But what do you, and, and, you know, he passed away in late 2019, I think, uh, shortly before the pandemic. Um, and yeah, in just later years, he turned out these popular works yeah. of criticism of, of varying quality and opaqueness. Um, what do you, what do you think of, of Harold Bloom? Yeah, I mean, this was an interesting piece to write. I should say, yeah. Uh, he had completely divorced himself from the department. The only thing he did was teach college students. And, you know, good for him. That's the only thing I would have done if I had a choice. Um, so not only no committee work, but no graduate teaching either. Um, I saw him, I think, three, three. it was so few times and he was such a memorable figure that, you know, they each of them implanted itself in my brain. And one of the times I believe we were at adjoining urinals in the men's room on the third floor of uh, LC, of uh, the English department's building on campus. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not uh, strike up a conversation with him on that or any other occasion. <laughs> I mean, Harold, as you say, uh, Harold, I did, everyone called him Harold a little presumptuously or pretentiously, but he, he, was a, he was a world unto himself, as one of my graduate school professors said. Um, he had an incredible mind. I mean, just a kind of freakish uh, uh, gift for absorbing and remembering uh, literature. 
he, he you know, read everything um, and had an incredibly original mind. Uh, his career really, I talk about this in the book, really three phases. He's a critic of, of the Romantic poets and he churns out one brilliant book after another or brilliant essay after another on Yeats, on Stevens, on the whole Romantic canon. Um, the rumor was that they didn't want to tenure him at Yale because they didn't like Jews back then. I mean, it was a really anti-Semitic, the field of English lit was really anti-Semitic. It was really part of the construction of like, quote unquote, Anglo-Saxon culture. So they didn't want this very Jewy Jew around, but he published so <laughs> fast that they didn't, he didn't give him a choice. And then, you know, he goes into his theoretical phase with the, the anxiety of influence and subsequent books that kind of work out the, the consequences, the implications, the ramifications of this fairly abstruse theory. I mean, that's pretty hard stuff. His, his romantic criticism is transparent. You can, it reads very easily. The theory is pretty, pretty hairy. And I, you know, I would read it fast precisely because it was easier to kind of read for drift than to get lost in the specific uh, terminology. And then at a certain point, I mean, maybe, you know, he, this is not uncommon. You get to a certain age and you don't want to work so hard anymore. And he, and or he sort of became this kind of public figure. I mean, I think because of the anxiety of influence and the sort of this rumor that there was this genius, you know, American, and, you know, and he's standing on equals with Derrida and so forth. And he sort of becomes this idea. And he, I don't know the details, but he clearly parlayed that or found an agent who helped him to parlay that into this kind of, I call it a Wizard of Oz routine. I mean, he became this sort of pronouncer on all matters cultural. And, and so he turned out one book after another, you know, on Shakespeare or on the Western canon or the problem. And I read a bunch of them to do this review because this book was yet another one. The problem is, it's not that they're hard to understand. It's that he's not really saying anything. And he's not saying anything new. And it's an act. And it's an act that he just, that really got stale very quickly. So he was a great figure, but he just kind of became a, a kind of, um, a kind of simulacrum of himself, a kind of, a kind of, uh, he was impersonating himself. I mean, you know, this, like I said, this happens to a lot of people. It can happen to musicians. It can happen to actors. Uh, so I tried, you know, I try to say all of that in the piece, in the piece and to give him his due. And then to lament the fact that not only this happened to him, but he became the literary critic. So everybody's idea of literary criticism was the late Harold Bloom, where you just kind of you just pontificate and pass judgments, and and that's and that's not really what it's about. Yes, and and so in the Western canon, he defined the Western canon according to his precepts. You know, saying what things he thought should be in it, and and what things. Shouldn't. And that, that was maybe his first like mainstream, huge success kind of thing. I mean, it's funny you said he, he decided not to work so hard. Obviously, well, someone was working extremely hard turning no, no, all this true. stuff out, but maybe no, I mean, having yeah. original thoughts. Um, it's it, harder. It, it's harder than. No, I mean, really, I mean, really, it, be, it really, the stuff just becomes extremely repetitive. Actually, now that you jog my memory, I think his first big uh, popular success was the Book of Jay. Oh, okay. Right? Right, which is about, you know, the Book of Jay is one of the three narrative strands in the Book of Genesis. And someone else produced a new translation and Bloom wrote the the notes, which is kind of his own theory about how the author of Jay, who was the he says is the great literary writer in the Bible, 
was a woman living in the court of King David or King Solomon, I forget which, which is just, I mean, there's absolutely no evidence for that. But um, it's it's him. I mean, it's it's a, it's an interesting book, but it's exactly him sort of doing this performance and claiming this right to make pronouncements, even when he's really just bullshitting. And and this, as opposed to the earlier work, where it's like really, you know, I mean, um, he's do, he's done the work to justify the argument, and now he's just like I said, he's become this sort of uh, sibyl, this kind of oracle. Who, who no one is holding to account because right. he's Harold Bloom because he's Harold Bloom and the editors are happy and he sells a million copies and you know yeah I mean a singular figure and there's no there's no one who could replace him or who should replace him yeah who would, would <laughs> like who's the who's the runner-up at this point for best known American literary critic or something um it's not someone who's like face you could pick out of a lineup right. For, I assume, yeah. I mean, the the experience of auditing that <laughs> that seminar was was quite interesting. I was both since I wasn't, you know, enrolled in the class. I never raised my hand the entire time, but also I was too scared to say anything because he would, you know, the the class would start with him. It was Shakespeare um, tragedies and romances, and so we'd be you know doing Winter's Tale, and he he would ask a question, and one of the students would. Nervously the raise their of actually answering, yeah. Raise their hand and offer an answer, and he would say no, that's not right. right. And then he would talk for fifteen or twenty minutes uninterrupted, and it was it was cogent. I mean, it, yeah, it wasn't. It was much less sort of um, gnostic or something than than the writing. Um, but it was it was an interesting experience. And I'm glad I I was able to like see the see the guy in in the flesh. Right. Um, right. No, and I, I've I heard from students who took his class that it's, it was quite an experience. But you you said it exactly right. Is that he became a monologist, or however you say that word. He started mm -hmm. to deliver monologues, which is why in the piece I compare him to Mr. Kurtz from Heart of Darkness. Um, he, you know, and uh, as you know, as uh, in in Apocalypse Now, which was based on Heart of Darkness, um, uh, or I, I think this is in the book as well. Um, you know, one doesn't talk to Mr. Kurtz, one listens. <laughs> that's the thing. But that's yeah. not, I mean, that's not the intellectual life. That is not the critical life. It's not about delivering a monologue. It is the life of a of a preacher or a, or as I said, a sibyl or an oracle. Or a rabbi, which is what his, a different, like, life of his, he would have become. Oh, yeah. Like a great rabbi. Absolutely. Who could he would have been a Talmud. Talmud. Yeah. As I say, he would have been one of these people who could who memorize the entire Talmud. He had that kind of incredible mind. Uh, but but look, I mean, you know, in the Talmudic tradition, it's always argument. And you right. always, in fact, the rabbis say you should, you should never study the Talmud by yourself. It's always dialectical and dialogical. And the problem with Bloom is that he, was, he stopped listening to anybody. And so the last books are just one monologue after another, and it's always the same monologue. So he just he just became boring and tiresome. Maybe not in class. I mean, you guys were hearing his shtick for the first time. Okay, and that's, sure that's it was true. very cool. That's true. And it's possible that he was playing the hits, um, right. you know, for a new Likely. group of 22-year-olds. Right. Um, no, it's funny, you know, thinking about the, him as a figure of solitude or perhaps um solipsism solipsism different you know, different thing yeah yes. um yes versus you know i 
I guess, well, did he, I don't know if he, if he ever would have had, uh, you know, used a computer or something. I think he, someone was telling me that he would send emails sometimes, but, um, but yeah, but also, you know, one of the things you write about, and maybe you'll be going on for a bit now, maybe this, and there's a lot of stuff in the book we haven't touched on, but you write about why you left academia. Yeah. Um, and in that essay, and then another one, you're very critical of the way that academia works for professors and the expectations of them and how the things that you see as the most important parts of the university experience are often don't matter at all when it comes to getting tenure or being hired. Um, right. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, 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 sure. Um, why I left academia, which was a fun piece to write. And I think the last one I wrote and one that I've wanted to write ever since I left academia, I should say that it just came out at Quillette and Quillette doesn't have a paywall. So whenever this episode drops, people can, can go and read it. Um, this, yes, you raise, you raise an issue that I've been writing about and banging my head against the wall about for a long time. It's also in that more recent piece, Soul Making Studies and Liberties. It's the fundamental contradiction at the heart of the modern university. Uh, so the modern university arises in, uh, you know, university has, has existed, have existed in the West since I think the 12th century. Um, and they're sort of maybe similar kinds of uh, institutions in other cultures. But the modern university is different, right? Modern university arises with modern science, but science in what used to be the broader sense, what the Germans call Wissenschaft. So it would include social science and humanities as systematic empirical uh, disciplines, right? Where, where, um, where, where knowledge is produced and accumulates, right? And this, this has a very specific historical starting point. It's 1810 in Prussia uh, with the founding of the university in Berlin. And that model is imported into the United States in 1876 with the establishment of Johns Hopkins. And then very quickly exist either new institutions like Stanford and the University of Chicago are created in the same model or existing ones like the Ivy League, Harvard and Yale and so forth, uh, pivot to this model, right? Science in every sense is gaining momentum rapidly and is becoming the basis of prosperity, of industry, of social organization. The social sciences themselves are coming into existence as disciplines at this time in the 19th century, sociology, anthropology, and so forth. Um, and this is a tremendously powerful idea because it produces so much power. It produces so much wealth and governmental power and organizational power. So the university, the modern university becomes this really important thing. And I'm all for what it does. You know, the quote unquote knowledge factory, of course I am. The problem is that the old mission of a university or in America, a college, because we didn't have universities, was to teach undergraduates. It was to teach undergraduates, yes, you were preparing them for occupational fields, especially law and the clergy in the United States. Um, but you were also, for lack of a better term, shaping their souls or building their characters, right? Um, everything that we now associate with what we call a liberal education. The problem is that that mission, it's not at odds with the university mission of research, but they're just different. They come into contradiction when it becomes the sole criterion for the 
training and hiring and tenuring of faculty that they produce research. The research model, and it takes hold already by 1903, William James, the great Harvard psychologist, writes an essay called The PhD Octopus, and how this is sort of the PhD octopus is strangling much of what is good in higher education. Gradually, more and more over the decades, this, this model, like you are rewarded as a professor or prospective professor for and only for your scholarly productivity, which means not for your teaching and specifically not for your teaching of undergraduates. So that gets neglected. And, you know, it's not a, a new saying that teaching, that college students tend to be incredibly unhappy with the teaching they receive in college. There's a great book by a guy I know at the University of Pennsylvania called Jonathan Zimmerman. He's a historian of higher education. And I think a couple of years ago, maybe just last year, he published a book called The Amateur Hour, which is a history, I think the first history of college teaching in America. And he goes through this from the very beginning and especially from the rise of the research university. Everyone's, you know, large lecture halls, professors who have no charisma, uh, <laughs> overworked graduate students or more recently adjuncts who often resent their students because they're kind of virtual slave labor, the adjuncts are. Um, this is my criticism or one of my criticisms. And listen, other people have made this criticism for a long time. But the problem is the incentives remain exclusively devoted to research. I mean, schools will pretend that they care about teaching when it comes to tenure, but they don't. Basically, if you're, a good if you're gonna get tenure anyway, then being a good teacher could help you, except you're already gonna get tenure anyway. And being a bad teacher won't hurt you. Is, is this different at all at a research university versus a liberal arts college? That's a great question, because in theory it should be, and in practice, liberal arts colleges are often places that do put more emphasis on teaching, and I would say especially more emphasis on face-to-face uh, -face relationships between professors and undergraduates. If you go to a research university, you might, you know, you can wave at your professor from the back of a lecture <laughs> hall. Whether it's a place like Harvard, where they just don't want to have any time for teaching, or a, play, or a big you know, public university campus where they're just giant lecture halls. If you're at a liberal arts college, you are going to have much more connected relations with your professors. But your professors were all disciplined in the same system. They went to graduate programs at research universities. They are rewarded within their disciplines for their productivity. If they ever want to get another job, they need to keep their research uh, program going. Even especially elite liberal arts colleges, care a lot about their professor's productivity. Um, I interviewed for a job at Bryn Mawr, where the provost made that very clear. People at Pomona have talked to me about this. So, you know, the, the, the institutions are different in some ways, but the professors are the same. So it's not necessarily that much better. Is there an example? I mean, what, are, is it community colleges or where, you know, is there yeah. an example where this, this doesn't yeah. matter or yeah. uh, yes. in America? Yes, yes, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. So uh, below the level of the research universities, and again, I'm including many of the big public universities. Uh, there's several hundred institutions that are considered quote unquote research universities, but they're like 4,000 institutions altogether. 
So if you're at like a branch campus of a state university, not the flagship campus, and certainly if you're at a community college, and like 40% of college students go to community colleges, it's different. But those people, because their research expectations are much lower, those faculty, their teaching loads are much higher. So typically at a branch campus, instead of teaching two courses a semester, you're teaching three. At a community college, typically you're teaching four. Sometimes it's even more, it could be five. You don't have to worry about your research really hardly at all, but you may be really overworked and your classes are bigger because, I mean, you know, these schools are starving for fun. So I don't mean to make it sound, listen, I, I make it sound like there are no good places anywhere. Like I said, <laughs> like I said a long time ago in this conversation, it's different from classroom to classroom. And so much of it depends on who your professor is and what their commitment, what their commitments are, what they care about, what their passions are. Uh, but it is a phenomenon across all institutional types and throughout the history of American higher education, especially in the last 150 years, that students tend to be really dissatisfied with the teaching they're getting. Um, I, I was reminded of an anecdote that I told on a previous episode of this podcast, but a couple of years ago, and it was actually with Glenn Lowry, who you um, oh, yes. mentioned at one point in the book. Yes. And that is, I was talking to someone who grew up in Canada and went to college in Canada. And she was asking me, how does everyone know what it means that you went to Oberlin? Like, right. how does everyone know that? And I was like, I don't, yeah, I mean, that is sort of weird, but and she was like, yeah, what, what is, you know, in America, in America, it would seem very alien to her. Yeah. The identification with one's university. And yeah, I, she may have been like, like, you know, what does it mean that you went to Yale? And I was like, well, it's, you know, it's a really good college, but like, it's considered a little bit of the, like the oddball, you know, but, but like, we all have these ideas of what it means yeah. that you went to XYZ and she was saying in Canada, this doesn't exist at all. Yeah. And she, and as a, you know, immigrant to the U S she found it confounding, not only that we all care so much, but also that everyone somehow everyone quote unquote, um, in some sort of class strata, I guess, like knows what this means that Oberlin represents X right. and Wesleyan represents Y. Um, it, is this all like an American, like, pathology or obsession or something that's related to the idea that we don't have landed gentry or people who we, you know, we think because right. of their birth are better than us and should have certain right. privileges, you know, th and, and the college is in the like self-conception is the place where someone can work themselves up from their bootstraps and, you know, make themselves at college and then go off and do whatever they want. Yeah. How, how does that strike you? Yeah, right. That's a good question. So first of all, I mean, you did qualify it at the end about a certain class stratum. I think most Americans, and even most Americans who go to college, would not know all this stuff. It's actually a, one of the problems with recruiting students from poorer backgrounds is that they the only schools they've ever heard of are the public universities in their state or the Ivy League schools. And they don't know anything about places like Oberlin and that it could be an option for them. But you're right, within sort of the elite educated and elite education going upper middle class, of course, everybody knows all of the, the uh, you know, narcissism of small differences, differences between Wesleyan and Oberlin and Harvard and blah, blah, blah. Um, and as you suggest, this is one of the big ways 
first of all, that we um, achieve our class position, but also just the way that we define and identify ourselves. I mean, we don't have, I mean, we have ethnic groups. Those are also just getting weaker. I mean, than they were back in the, you know, sort of the immigrant. I mean, we, we now have new immigrants, but I mean, uh, people are not tied to region in the way they are in other countries. I mean, they're weakly tied to region and place. People who go to these kinds of colleges move around. They go across the country and then to a third city when it's time for a job. So what is it that actually identifies them? What do they carry with them through life? That's their badge. It's the college much more than it is in other places. But I don't know what the situation is in Canada. I do know that in England, it matters a hell of a lot. I mean, Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge is is a whole nother thing. I mean, people are very conscious of going there or not there. Mm-hmm. Um, in France, you have the, the Grand École and the University of Paris, the Sorbonne. Uh, in India, you have the IITs and the IIMs, which are a huge, you know, sort of sorting mechanism. So we're not entirely unique, but I agree this whole, again, it's this whole, it's the, it's the extent to which we identify the whole school spirit, school sweatshirt, you know, window sticker in the Volvo thing. <laughs> I guess now it's a Prius. Uh, that does <laughs> seem to be uniquely American. Yeah. And I, this woman was saying that she she said that she couldn't remember whether she had actually attended her graduation or not um <laughs> yeah. you know 15 or so there years later there she's like go. i think i must have done something because i have the diploma somewhere but like i don't know if i just like went later whereas you know in in america like at all sorts of graduation ceremonies are like these giant you know civic events with pop and yes. pop and circumstances and stuff so i so i don't know um and just and just the the phenomenon of the residential college. I mean, obviously Oxford, Cambridge, you live there, but I think for, my impression is I'm not an expert on this. My impression is that for the most part, whether it's in Britain or in Canada, you're not necessarily living on campus. Right. You're not, your life is not bound up with campus, and and that's true of a lot of American. Again, probably most American students, but the residential college that does you know, and it, and it, you know it could be Michigan, and it doesn't have to be a small, elite a private school. Uh, that's a, that's like a huge thing. And the experience, you know, like just a very word college. I mean, most places don't even call it college. They call it university, right? Um, Andrew Dobanko's book, College, what it was, what it is, what it could be, I think is the subtitle. Like just that word, just the golden glow around that word. That we understand <laughs> that it means a residential experience between the ages of roughly 18 and 22, is 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 this whole cultural construct in the United States in a way that I don't think it is anywhere else? Right, and and probably mixed up in this is um, America's vexed relationship to alcohol, and yeah. that in you know a lot of yeah like college is the place where you can go and and drink and not drive, um and and sort of go crazy in a way and yes. and a lot of you know and hook up. Yeah, and in sort of a yeah a, a safe, somewhat safe space in between. Whereas you know other countries, maybe they're drinking. You know, people are, are drinking wine as teenagers with their family at dinner, and and so so like the prohibitionist instinct yeah. in America makes it more like a forbidden kind of thing where you're binging once you get to college. Um, yeah. so that probably plays plays yeah, I think a that's role a good as well. Point. Yeah. Um. Okay, we've been going on for a while, but do you have time to talk a little bit about this, about the soul-making studies um, essay? 
Oh, sure. Again, it's not in the book. It's in the current issue of Liberties magazine. Yes, and a link, a link will be in the podcast description to this, but to yes. this piece. But it's certainly, I mean, it obviously is, is continuous with a bunch of the stuff that I talk about in the book, especially with respect to higher education. So please go ahead. Well, so you're responding, you're reviewing a couple books uh, about great books courses that recently came yeah. out, and you're also responding to a review of those books by Louis Manand. Is that how you say his name? Manand? I believe so. Louis Manand, um, yeah. Who yeah. wrote a piece in The New Yorker um, last year that sort of ridiculed snarked, the, snarked, the idea of, on it. Yes. of great books courses. That's right. And you are defending them. Yes, I am. And you mentioned uh, St. John's, which is a the most extreme version of this, I, I guess, because yes, they also absolutely. like read Archimedes or something to understand. And because there are no electives, this is the entire syllabus, the entire curriculum is a great right. So, so, but in most places, it's more like you're reading classic works of um, literature and philosophy, right. um, from both antiquity and you know, um, yeah, Western Western canon. Homer to, jo Homer to Joyce or. Uh, Homer to Tony Morrison in the literature class, and then in the political, it's usually political philosophy, especially. So you go from maybe Plato or Socrates to uh, whatever the most recent one might be, maybe Foucault or whatever. Do you, I, so I encourage people to read this piece, and we can't get into all of it, but yeah. you offer, I mean, in some ways, this seems like the most sort of pure version of the university that you want of young people are being exposed to the greatest works of the Western canon yeah. and with instructors who care, care about it and are you know, like committed to, to doing this and aren't, you know, have their own specialty or something, but they're willing to like dive into these things with, yeah. with the students. And this is also sort of the thing that, you know, the Scott walkers of the world would be most likely to cut yes. from the budget immediately. Cause it, Seemingly, it you know it has no practical, real practical value, um, and so I recommend people check this piece out. And and, and the Manan piece, people could maybe read that before because you're responding to that. And yeah. um, but you had an interesting, I mean, so what? So a common critique aside, the one critique of the great book stuff is, you know, waste of time. <laughs> the other are not practical, and then the other is dead white males. Yeah. Um, and you had an interesting rebuttal to the yeah the dead white males yeah one. So could so let me just say that? by way of preface, I'm not saying that everyone should go to a college like St. John's where that's all you study. Um, I do think this is a really important experience for first and second year students to have. I think in some ways it should be the core experience. But again, I mean, you know, all the other things that you can study, I think, are are, are perfectly valid and and there is a practical purpose to going to college and also just all of those other things are, you know, intellectually valuable, whether it's economics or physics or whatever it is. Um, but uh, but a but a, a core course or two, like I both took and taught at at Columbia. I, I was an undergraduate and a PhD student at Columbia. You do a year. Uh, in, in the literature sequence, you do a year in the political philosophy sequence. There are other core courses too, but those are the the most important ones. Um, one of the books that I'm reviewing is by a guy named Roosevelt Montas, who was the director of the Center for the Core at Columbia for a while, is still involved in it. And the book's called Rescuing Socrates. And it's a great book. And it's really structured as a memoir. He comes from a poor Dominican family. He's an immigrant. 
and and he talks about his relationship with this these books and what it really means. I mean, it's the best articulation I've come across, including my own, of why do, of why and how you teach these books. Now, to the defense, dead white men. Well, first of all, I think that's just stupid as a way of dismissing anything. And implicit, aside from the hostility, um, implicit in that um, dis disparagement is the idea that uh, everything that's said by dead white men is said because they are white men or dead white men, which I think mm -hmm. is is an absurdity. I mean, first of all, it doesn't explain why white men disagree with each other. Like if we're all supposed to, I mean, are the things that I say because I'm a white man and the things that someone who's a white man who says the exact opposite of me, is that also because he's a white <laughs> man? I mean, it makes no sense. But I don't even say that in the piece. What I say is, uh, we live in the West, and the West politically and imaginatively is founded on the Western tradition, whether you like it or not. So if you want to understand the world you live in, you need to understand that tradition and the great books is kind of the central spine of those traditions. Uh, so, I, for example, I say it makes no more sense for, to me to replace Plato with Confucius at a Western university than it would to replace Confucius by Plato at a Chinese university. I'm not telling the Chinese that they should study the Western tradition. It's not their tradition. Their culture and political thought is built on a different tradition. I also say that all of those who critique the Western tradition in our universities, the, say the post-enlightenment thinkers, the postmodern thinkers, the feminist thinkers, what do they think they came out of? They came out of the Western tradition. In fact, they are part of the Western tradition. They are the latest chapter in the Western tradition, which has always been one of vigorous contention, just as Nietzsche, who negated the entire, in some ways, the entire previous Western tradition, or Derrida, who did the same. They were also the latest chapter in their time of the Western tradition. This is the tradition. So to me, among other things, there seems to be this great sort of, um, self-denial or self-deception on the part of those critics as to who they are themselves. Like, where do you think feminism came from? Where does modern feminism come from? Does it come out of Chinese culture? Does it come out of Indian culture? It's not that those cultures are inferior, it's just that they are different. And uh, this is the one we had, and it's produced all of the concepts that are now being used to critique it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it's it's... I get, I can see both sides of this, I think. And, you know, you list things that were on a syllabus at a, I guess, a version of the great books course yeah. that Manon himself. Yeah. Worked at on, That's right. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, has some Confucius, had some Plato. Um, I mean, as we're, you know, as Americans, we live in the Western, um, we're inheritors to the Western tradition. We also are, you know, uh, more more linked to people in China who, you know, come from a different tradition and understanding that one would seemingly be a good thing as well if you want to understand something about that society that I, is I don't, growing I power. Don't, and... I don't disagree with that at all, but I don't think one is a substitute for the other. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, yes, I don't. I'm not saying everyone has to do St. John's, where it's the the whole thing is great book. And by the way, in St. John's, they do Chinese thinkers and Indian thinkers and so forth. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do focus on the West. And so, uh, but I, I, you know, I think, you know, Columbia, we do these two year long courses, uh, you know, maybe it needs to be more than just four semesters, um, a, a core foundation in Western thought. And then absolutely, you want to mandate, even require a course in non-Western thought. I'm absolutely, I have no problem with that. Not, and not just because China's, you know, rising to your competitor, but because you know, we have people in this country now from all over the world. Um, but I, you know, I mean, I'm Jewish and I come from an Orthodox background. I wouldn't put studying the Talmud on the same footing as studying Plato, even though that's the tradition that I come from, because mm-hmm. I recognize that it is not the central tradition. In in Israel, there's a liberal arts college now in Israel called Shalem, where their great books courses center on the Jewish tradition, as is appropriate. But we don't live there. We live here. <laughs> Um, okay, let's, maybe we should wrap things up. We've been going on yes. for a while. Is there anything else you want to say before? No, this was great. Before we close? Um, well, thank you for coming back on. And, uh, so the book, The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society, a link to the Amazon page for it will be in the show notes. And uh, anything else you want to mention? You have a, a newsletter that mainly is keeping track of things. Oh, yeah. So if you go to you my website, BillDerezowitz.com, you'll see a way to sign up for my newsletter. And the news, I don't write anything for the newsletter. It's just everything I publish, I send out to my list so you know that I've published it. And uh, if you're interested in you know following my writing on an ongoing basis, because I write for a lot of different places, then you can sign up for the newsletter. Okay, well, Bill, thank you for taking the time and thank you to all of our listeners out there and we'll see you again next time. Thanks very much.